Shot Refer Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Adrian Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's the Thomas Pynchon of British comedy, Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. Hello, Ed. Thank you very much. And also joining us, having built a house with his own bare hands from only the mightiest of oaks, it's Matt Risby. Hi, Matt. How's it going? Hey, man. It's good to be back. Uh, it's nice. I, I can't believe that I'm not the Tim- Thomas Pynchon of comedy, because that... <laughs> I mean, that's a great, that's a great intro. Isn't I'd kill it? to be the Thomas Pinchon of anything. Isn't it? I'm sorry, Matt. <laughs> this is a very obscure off-mic conversation that, that Ed and I had. And I'm not going to explain it because I am the Thomas Pinchon of uh, British comedy. So, <laughs> mm, yeah. Maybe you could explain it using ridiculous character names um, <laughs> and, you know, long running times. I feel like that's bad. I've been off the show for like two months and all of a sudden there's all these in-jokes that I don't understand. Oh. Uh, I'm not sure I like this very much. Oh. See, Matt, though, you know, I'm going to make you feel better. I'm going to make you bring you back into the fold and not let you feel left out because I have been preparing for this day for so long. <laughs> Hang on. Okay. Oh, oh, return of the Mat. Come map. on. Return Hooray! of the Mat. Oh, my God. You know that I'll be back. Here I am. Return of the Mat. Once again. I'll stop that. But yeah, that's. <laughs> I mean, I'm disappointed that he couldn't get Mark Morrison in personally. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure he's not busy. Um, but yes, I have been away. I didn't quite build a house, like Ed said. I, I bought a house, um, which has turned out to be both the most exciting thing you can do and the most fucking boring. Because <laughs> it's like, hey, I own a house. I can do whatever I want. The possibilities are endless. Aren't I a grown-up now? And then the flip side of that is, you know, two-hour conversations about grout and skirting boards <laughs> that seem essential. And I've spent more time thinking about skirting boards in the last two months than I ever want to think about skirting boards. And yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm over it. But, you know, I've got a house and that's cool. And I've got like a little podcast studio slash board game dungeon. That's what I'm calling it. And because the people we bought the house off, they converted the cellar because I don't think they had a happy marriage. And <laughs> the guy spent all his time down here, it seems. And yeah, so that's good. So that should hopefully benefit the show. And now... <laughs> I'm back, and I think we're all going to be here together going forward, aren't we, Ed? Yeah, like uh, me and Matt were talking a little while ago about how, about you know, like him coming back and you know, kind of what we want to do with the show since then. And it's like, oh, you know, it would be a shame not to have Emily around. I think we both came to the realization that we could just ask you if you wanted to keep doing the show with us because uh, the last. Two, three months of shows, uh, I think, have been great. And you, Emily, have been fantastic. And, yeah, I think uh, it's going to be really cool to have all three of us doing the show at the same time whenever we can manage it, but uh, otherwise kind of, like, alternating. And uh, welcome aboard, Emily. Lads, 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 lads. I'm, thank you, guys. <laughs> Honestly, I'm just really chuffed to still be here. I love doing this, and thank you. Although it seems weird announcing it now, because, like, we decided it, like, a month ago. <laughs> And we've mm. had like three dates to like get us all together to record it. And in that time, like the bio to the podcast has been changed. And like anyone who was paying attention would have seen that this has uh, been something that's been long planned. But uh, yeah, it's I'm I'm super excited to mm. launch uh, Shot Reverse Shot version, I guess, three at this point. Yeah, I guess so. Version one was pretty kind of short lived, but version two was 
you know, it was a, it was a long-lived iteration. But version three, I've got a good feeling about it. Because whilst I wasn't on the show, and, like, someone came up to me, one of my friends, and they were like, oh, I've really enjoyed the show since you've not been on it. Thanks <laughs> like, oh, a fucking bunch. I think that's a ringing endorsement of, uh, of our Emily, but also mm. a scathing indictment of what I bring to the show. <laughs> yeah, so you've got something to prove now. Like, up until this point, you were just resting on your laurels. We're just phoning it in. Yeah, literally. <laughs> we yeah, yeah every, every week we phone it in. <laughs> So we'll go on to the news, our first news segment under the new format, which is very like the old format, but with more voices, uh, which is always good. And it's our Halloween spectacular in which we talk about nothing horror related. Well, mm. except entropy, I guess. That is quite terrifying. But, um, <laughs> There's so much entropy. Oh, my God. Spectacular. <laughs> but we'll start off with a, something at least nominally horror related, which has been the success of the sequel, long delayed sequel to Halloween. Uh, which uh, is directed by David Gordon Green. It's been out for two weeks and so far in the US. It has earned $126 million off of a $15 million budget. It's true. uh, Which is, uh, I'd say, pretty successful. It's uh, David Gordon Green's most successful movie ever, which is uh, not really that surprising considering uh, his career consists of low-budget indies that hardly anyone sees, Pineapple Express, which a lot of people saw, and then kind of mid-tier comedies that no one watched. So Mm. this is far and away his biggest and most surprising Uh, endeavor i think of his career it's interesting in terms of stuff we've talked about on the show in the past because obviously it's a bloomhouse production and we've been talking about bloomhouse for years at this point about their model and how fascinating it is and this really does seem to be a vindication for the model they pursued which is keep budgets low sometimes only like a couple of million dollars and then you know kind of release it with savvy marketing in this case probably the most savvy thing being getting jamie lee curtis on board to reprise her role as laurie strode you know reaping the benefits and it's well on the way to being either their most successful movie ever or their second most successful movie depending on how it competes against them get out and also kind of as part of this whole story you know uh, all of the people involved with the movie were being interviewed and jason bloom gave a interview to Polygon, uh, to Matt Patches of Polygon, in which uh, Matt Patches talked to him about the fact that Blumhouse have made all of these movies over the last 10 years or so. They've made dozens of movies, all these TV shows, and yet they have never hired a woman to direct any of their horror movies. Mm -hmm. And this sparked off, I think, a very healthy debate and discussion online uh, such as you can have on Twitter, where uh, it's very hard to kind of make nuanced points in 280 characters. But uh, I think it did point to a continuing systemic problem in Hollywood, which is everyone talks about how they want to hire more women to direct movies. And yet even people who say that and are in a position to do that uh, often don't. I think I should hand it over to Emily first, who I know has a, a, you know, we've been kind of talking about this uh, off mic a lot over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, just want to hear your your thoughts on uh, Halloween in general, but, you know, this particular controversy. Oh, Ed. Well, what do you you reckon? Take a wild running guess. You sent me the really interesting interview with, and obviously we talked a lot about him particularly in our horror episode a while back and his business model and I think that we came to the same conclusion about this interview which was it was just very disingenuous like Mm. I don't really see how someone can list lots of interesting women directors and be like oh I just haven't been able to work with them 
that's not that's mm. not how it is like at least say shit's in development you can you yeah. can get away with a lot of that like there's actually something i wouldn't say endearing but refreshing about actually how like on the surface he comes across in this interview because he's not even really trying to make it sound like he's doing anything better and he's clearly so um in admiration of Jamie Lee Curtis and what she brought to the set and she does seem like um a really incredible creative force and I and I didn't doubt that for a second but the sad thing is is that obviously you've got the content and the themes of Halloween itself which is like we've not only got Laurie Strode we've got her daughter and her granddaughter now there is like this sense of inheritance and this sense of this evil male sexually motivated misogynistic presence that is Michael Myers and that we have these generations of women who are like clubbing together to finally sort it out once and for all who have managed to thrive under the threat of this and yet where where is where is the lesson learned where is that being enacted in real life and there are a lot of really clumsy statements on his behalf because you and I have mm. spoken obviously a lot about how much I absolutely adore Karen Kasama and it's like, well, she made the invitation. That's one of the best horror films of the past like, 15 years. Yeah, really, really strange and disappointing. And hopefully he's kind of made enough of a blunder that there's at least some kind of pressure for the brand for him to hurry up just to recover in that way. Mm. I think the problem, one of the problems we've got is every time something, someone says something stupid like this, like, well, there just aren't any women working in horror. The annoying thing is, is everyone then tries to scrabble around naming female directors that they would get to direct a horror film rather than just thinking, well, you're happy to take a chance on a fucking dude with no experience. Why Mm. not just like... You know, just go for it. Like, they hired... Get Out is their most successful film. Jordan Peele is not a journeyman horror director. He was making his his film directing debut. You know what I mean? He'd never worked kind of in that, like, genre properly before. Like, obviously, he had a famous, like, sketch show. But that was it. Like, you know, I had as much experience directing horror movies as him. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But, like... And maybe because I'm a dude, I might have got a crack at it. But like, I hate the idea that that they say, "Well, there are no fe- we, uh, female directors who are directing horror right now." And then they're like, "Well, maybe this director, maybe um, this director," and then trying to shoehorn them into it. Just like, fucking take a chance for Christ's sake! Just mm. you know, there's got to be people out there doing interesting things, and you just got to say, "Well, do you know what? That will, you know, it doesn't matter that they haven't directed a horror movie before. That's not the qualification for directing a horror movie." Mm, yeah, because like M Night Shyamalan's like first couple of movies were like cloying saccharine dramas before he made The Sixth Sense, which mm. was one of the most successful horror movies of all time. I don't think William Friedkin had ever directed a horror movie before he made The Exorcist. Like being involved in horror is not a prerequisite; just having ideas and you know talent and drive are the things that are needed to make those movies and to make them well. And mm. I don't think none of those are uh, uniquely male, I think it's fair to say. No. And if you're saying that no women are working in horror, what you're really saying is I can't be bothered to look. Mm. Yeah. Or you're you're just commenting even further on the problem by saying uh, people aren't hiring women to make horror movies. <laughs> so how can I hire women to make horror movies? Yeah. It's kind mm. of a, a horrible or uh, robberous of, uh, of a problem not being solved. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 
and a lack of uh, taking responsibility and initiative, which is such a shame because I think Blum otherwise is a really interesting producer and he has been, I mean, I hate using this term, but he has been really disruptive. But where's the actual mm. progression? What's the point of being disruptive if you're not actually being progressive in some way and if you're just playing and enforcing the status quo? Mm. And if you compare him to someone like, who isn't who doesn't work in horror, but someone like Paul Feig, who mm. has used his position as someone who has had tremendous success to elevate the voices of the women that he works with, you know, that he he hires women to write, I think, all of his movies or co-write all of his movies. And he has produced work by female filmmakers. And and that that is kind of clearly a model to follow of someone who's like, OK, I have all of this power. I'm going to try and use it to help find people more opportunities that without because of the, the way the system is set up without me giving them that kind of lift and that push they might not otherwise get. And Jason Blum is uniquely situated in that regard now because he has had this tremendous success over, you know, a great many number of years at this point and his movies have earned billions of dollars worldwide and on, you know, kind of tiny budgets. If he wanted to take a chance on a first-time female filmmaker or even just a female filmmaker who had not worked in horror before but was really passionate about an idea then there's really nothing to stop him doing it because he has all of that power and that prestige that he has accrued over that time Mm, yeah totally just just you're in a position where you're not having to you're not operating kind of like check to check here you've got a little Mm. bit of comfort built in with some incredibly successful films just just do it like you know what i mean i know that it's not i'm not giving my own money away to someone who's got experience <laughs> but you know it it cannot be that hard it really cannot be that hard the hardest thing is being the first one to just say you know what i mean just fucking do it mm. like i see that something happened while while i've been on a hiatus they the kind of the star wars tv show they announced all their directors, didn't they, of who was going to do it. And mm-hmm. there's like a mixture of like directors who have done stuff. And then Bryce Dallas Howard is doing an episode. It's just like, Bryce Dallas Howard is doing an episode. She's never directed anything in like sci-fi. Who gives a shit? Mm. Yeah. She just wants to do it and she should be given the chance. Yeah. And her dad directed a Star Wars. That probably helped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that might have had a little bit to do with it. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see if Isla Fisher directs one next. <laughs> She's the one who really gets the boost. <laughs> from that family um yeah probably probably the only people who reference uh, arrested development season four and five are on this podcast <laughs> um, uh, oh it's good to be home guys it's good to be home <laughs> i mean our next series of uh stories all kind of barrel into each other and kind of take us into the main topic uh first off uh, over the last couple of weeks we've had a lot of cancellations from netflix netflix kind of famously were cancellation averse for their first couple of years. You know, they would keep shows on the air after people had lost interest or never had interest in them. Like, they kept Hemlock Grove on for, like, three years. And Mm. I'd never even met a person in the real world or online who watched Hemlock Grove. So, yet, (laughs) Eli Roth produced it, so I guess they had to keep it going to ride the wave of his prestige, I guess. But they, in recent times, have perhaps realised that just making endless seasons of everything that you make is probably not the best business strategy uh, if you don't want to just keep losing money. So they announced a raft of cancellations. They uh, are cancelling or or they are bringing to a close Orange is the New Black is coming back for a final season. And then most kind of notably in terms of 
shows that were launched with much fanfare and then kind of uh, disappeared were Luke Cage and Iron Fist, both of which were kind of Marvel shows. Uh, the first season of Luke Cage got very good reviews and was generally well received. The second one, not particularly well liked. And the first season of Iron Fist was generally very hated. And the second series, I didn't even realise existed until I read <laughs> about the cancellation. <laughs> um, so that's not a great sign for that show. And then, kind of heartbreakingly uh, for me, and I know for you as well, Matt, American Vandal was cancelled after its mm. second season. Uh, although that's a show that was so... The, the high wire act of that show was so difficult that you kind of feel like, well, it, I've, I'm glad that they were able to do two really, really strong seasons as opposed to just kind of trying to do the same thing over and over. But it, it definitely feels as if there's some sort of a, a sea change happening at Netflix in terms of how they address a lot of their current shows and how they judge success compared to uh, how they've been acting recently. Mm, it kind of feels a little bit like the kind of the, the phase one of, of, of Netflix is coming to an end. Like, mm. you know, House of Cards is coming to an end, uh, whether it wanted to or not. Uh, Orange is the New Black is coming to an end, and these are coming, all these shows are kind of at the end of their lives, with the exception of Luke Cage and, and Iron Fist, which I was surprised about. But then they, they can kind of live on in the Defenders and the other shows that they kind of cross over with, I guess. American mm. Vandal coming to an end, being... Kind of, that, that was kind of cancelled in the way that me and Rihanna got divorced. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was never really a thing, was it, season three of American Vandal? Because mm. American season two of American Vandal is a kind of a genius act of how can we repeat the same trick twice but make it kind of really good? Mm. Um, but also it felt like they probably can't do a third episode, a third series, sorry. It didn't really work like that so to call it cancelled seems like needlessly dramatic yeah, yeah it seems a bit mean it sounds like they don't have faith in it somehow or something failed and you're right mm. like season three just wasn't gonna happen and mm. it, it it's um it feels like it just feels unnecessary to me you just say oh it's not really happening anymore or i feel like maybe we need an intermediate term where instead of being cancelled which I think in terms of Twitter rhetoric has just caught up (laughs) with so much more like it sounds so derogatory. Mm. We need something else where it's like, oh, it's just not coming back. It's done in the same way that like you'd hope that, for example, uh, you know, one of our favorite shows, Crazy um, Mm Ex-Girlfriend, is now into its fourth and final series, which is what they'd always really planned and had been hoping for. And because there's such a great relationship between the audience, the network, and the creators, that's what they're able to do. That's not going to cancel. That's just going to end. And it's like, well, mm. I think maybe the American Vandal people, creators did want to make a third series and like on them. But even if you say, no, we're just going to end it now, like that's fine. But cancellation means all this like PR release, you know, stuff and, and like a big announcement. And it just seems like, well, that's not it. Like that show just had to end. Mm. Well, the good thing about American Vandal um, being cancelled is the kids that make it are still quite young, so <laughs> they've still got their like college years ahead of them. They've so not even graduated. At least, you know, yeah. at least they can, you know, get something out of it. You know, I did quite like the beginning of this second series of American Vandal of how they managed to like integrate the Netflix thing into the narrative <laughs> as well, <laughs> and and I thought that was a really nice way of like pushing forward the premise for this series that they had a wider reach that they had kind of started to get this notoriety as documentary makers i thought that was neat i thought that was nice um i still haven't finished the second series so no spoilers but it's 
I think the issue is for me as well is that like even when it's a series I really love now in the age of like peak tv of absolute saturation of stuff that we can watch and access I'm secretly a bit glad when something finishes (laughs) because I'm like Mm. I have an end point now I can be done with this because you can have too much of a good thing you can Mm. It, it kind of made me flash back then you saying that to, you know, like a couple of years ago when I always had such agita about whether or not community was going to be renewed. Mm, like every mm. every year, year it was like, oh my God, you know, have they done well enough to keep off the bubble? bubble? Oh, Dan Harmon's been fired. That's the end. Oh, he's back. What? It's on Yahoo. What the hell is going on? <laughs> um, and the, the kind of like the, the strange and weird journey of that show. But yeah, I don't really feel that about any show <laughs> anymore. Like, and I don't, I don't know how much of that is just like me being in my thirties now and just not caring about things as much in general. But um, no, that I, I, I still care very deeply about a great many things. But may, maybe there are things. Actually, I was just thinking about that. Maybe there are things I care about more than you know whether or not television shows again. There are bigger problems in the world, and I think I'm realizing that now. Apparently um, so, yeah. But but it really does feel like now with shows that 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 compulsion to keep a show grinding and to keep it going even after you know like the people involved maybe have lost interest in it or after the audience has kind of drifted away really does feel a little bit dispiriting and I think that it does feel like a relief now to a certain point when you watch the show and you're like oh this show ended at the perfect point in its life cycle I it was really very good there was never any chance of it to decline because it ended you know it lived fast died young and left a beautiful corpse and it will always be there until netflix completely collapses because they don't put anything of theirs on dvd and then it, no one will be able to see it ever again but um oh actually no i think they put their shows on dvd but they don't put their movies on dvd which is uh yeah shitty but that's a, a whole other discussion basically more things need to end sooner mm. uh, yeah we ain't got that, time for this shit <laughs> that that's that's the story of our age we we first we had short attention spans. Now it's short. Like I think that Vine maybe took that too far. <laughs> like <laughs> the videos were only six seconds long, and then it got shut down. It's like no, that probably could have those videos could have been longer, and that service could have been around longer. But everything else I think could could be, uh, stand to be shortened. In other kind of uh, news of of I guess as we said earlier of entropy, uh, seemingly it was announced that the Wachowskis are closing their production company. The Wachowskis, obviously, the directors of the Matrix series, Speed Racer, Cloud Atlas. They basically don't have any ongoing projects at the moment, so they're closing their production offices. And uh, Lana Wachowski, in particular, said words to the effect of that she seems she thinks that she is done with filmmaking and that she has achieved all that she wanted to in filmmaking. And on one level, um, that's very sad because uh, you know, even though. The Wachowski's work, I think, is it's a spotty track record, um, particularly within just the Matrix franchise itself. But uh, I think they were a pair of really exciting visionary filmmakers who tried to push the boundaries with everything they did. And even when they weren't successful, they very rarely made boring movies. And when they were successful, they gave us things like Bound and The Matrix and Speed Racer and Cloud Atlas, all of which I love to varying degrees, and yeah, I just think it's just it just seems very very sad that for whatever reason the marketplace no longer is able to support them. And let's not forget Sense Eight on the uh, 
on the yeah. theme of Netflix cancellation, I think that really hit them so hard because that ended up being such a personal story for the mm. two of them. And I think it was a lot to do with their kind of like message of, of connection and, and um, empathy and humanity that they sort of started with Cloud Atlas, which they didn't do all that well in Cloud Atlas. Um, need I say <laughs> yeah. yellow face? Um, but yeah, there, there's some regrettable choices in Cloud Atlas. <laughs> which Sense8 was a lot better because it's like, oh, we're actually going to hire actors that are, that are these people. Mm-hmm. But I think that hit them very hard. And I just hope that even if they're shutting down their production company, it doesn't mean that they're not going to work for other people. And I hope mm. that um, it may just be a point where they are in their lives maybe they'll start doing other stuff i don't know maybe maybe i'm being a bit naive but i hope that this is just a, more of a kind of business thing than anything that will stop them from being creative maybe the wachowskis will you know be lily and lana separately for a bit i don't know we'll see it is a shame though in terms of like the local economy because you know they weren't mm. necessarily working out of LA, and they they were kind of working in their own place with their own people. So I wonder what will happen to them. But they are much loved as as batshit as uh, Jupiter Ascending is. They always try. They always just like go for the, like hell for leather with whatever they do. And I hope they continue doing that, even if you know it's not with this particular production company that they were running. Mm. Yeah, it, it always kind of like that whole um you know too weird to live too rare to die type uh kind of scenario um mm. with the wachowskis i mean just mentioning jupiter ascending that's a film i forgot they made but i will never forget i've seen <laughs> <laughs> and you know there i've seen so many films that i forget all about even good ones and jupiter ascending is not a good film but god damn it it's memorable and not in a kind of like this is this is so awful it's funny type way and just like this is just really super weird i don't really know don't really know how we got here but i'm kind of here and that's kind of what it's about for all the kind of i'd rather their misses i'd rather people's a, a people missed uh shooting for the moon rather than mm. you know trying to be safe and they never tried to be safe and hopefully they can find um somewhere else to 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 work um and i'm sure they will I'm, you know, I think them winding up their production company means that they're probably just not steering it the way they want to do in in terms of various projects. But mm. they will not want for work offers. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, hopefully, and and considering in terms of the fact that for very many years they were probably the most visible trans filmmakers in Hollywood, if not mm-hmm. the if not the world. Oh, for sure. And them not having the opportunity to kind of like make their voices heard in that way. Uh, I think it's, it's a terrible loss, you know, at a time when people are talking about, you know, trying to get more diverse voices making movies for, for two of the most distinctive artists of of the last like 20 years or so, certainly in, in terms of mainstream, massive budget Hollywood filmmaking, I think would be a, a terrible shame. Mm, absolutely. And speaking of terrible shames, um, this mm. was news that happened just the other day and sent... Um, shockwaves through uh, through film Twitter 
uh, rightly, because it's a real terrible shame, uh, Filmstruck, the streaming website which was produced by TCM and the Criterion Collection, is shutting down and is going to cease cease operations uh, at the end of November. And uh, uh, in between, just kind of like frantically trying to watch every Japanese horror movie I can watch on there, I've been you know thinking about that and about what it means for film culture in general because I think Filmstruck was never probably going to be a massively successful service because it it did gear itself towards people who really, really love movies, who love classic movies, who love world cinema. And whilst there are a lot of them kind of in, in general, you know, you're talking about like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, that's really not enough to kind of compete when you're trying to offer a broad service that could also appeal to people who want to supplement the kind of paltry classic film archives of, of Netflix or Hulu or Amazon, which don't really um, cover themselves in glory on that regard. Whilst a lot of people have said, oh, you know, that library is so valuable, the Criterion Collection will probably find a home somewhere else. It used to be on Hulu for many years until Filmstrug launched. I think what will be lost and what is the real loss to film culture is the sense of curation that Filmstrug yeah, had. Yeah. Because it, it wasn't just the endless stream of movies like you didn't just log on and suddenly it just like gave you an impossible wealth of choice every week they had a different collection they spotlighted a lot of directors who maybe were not as celebrated like at the moment there's a collection which is like 19 movies by Jacques Tournaire the guy who directed Cat People and all of those great kind of early Hollywood movies they were they offered an outlet for people to discover uh, like different eras of different countries cinema you know there was a real sense that the sh- that it was a site being and a service being run by people who loved film who wanted to share that love with people by saying okay we're not just gonna throw all of these movies at you and just leave you floundering we're just going to try and point you in this direction and in that respect it felt the closest that i think any streaming service has to the real old school small local video shop where it's not just about the library, it's about the people who run it and guide it and who guide you as someone who uses their service. And I think the idea of that not being available and that kind on on that kind of a broad format, broad scale, that that to me is what's really disheartening about it. Yeah, it's it's part of a worrying trend that with streaming services realizing that with rights issues belonging to other studios their best bet is to create their own content the Mm. amount of pre-existing content decreases and the thing that suffers the most on sites like netflix and to a lesser extent amazon prime is older stuff and it's such a shame that something that is such so easy to access as netflix or amazon prime does not hold a much larger selection of older films because mm-hmm. outside of owning a vast physical library of old movies with more and more libraries, physical libraries closing, you know, that do offer those things, you know, most libraries have a pretty substantial film collection too, as well as books. Where are people going to find these things? Yeah. Mm. Which is a real shame because when Filmstruck, because Filmstruck UK launched a lot later than Filmstruck Full Stop, and I seem to remember kind of bookmarking that and thinking that'll be a really good thing to to get on board with. And I'm pretty lazy, 
And I clearly did not get in quick enough because it ended before I could even sign up for it, which is such a shame because things like movie are great, but, you know, holding 30 films at one time is not, it's curated, but it's not curated to the idea that you can explore something once you've seen something you like. Like, mm. but you watch Detour or something, and all of a sudden, yes, you're into the world of Jacques Tourneur. Or, like, there's whole swathes of, of, of world cinema I've not seen, and all it takes is one film to capture your imagination, and then all of a sudden you just dive in at the deep end, and you're, it's there. Whereas, like, you're lucky if a film made before 1970 appears on Netflix for any reason, other than I noticed that they added a bunch of Orson Welles movies, and, like, they're only doing that because they own that, yeah, other side of the wind thing that they're they're putting out, and how long they'll be on there, I don't know. But that's it. If I've found something else I liked, there's no no kind of like vast collection for me to explore beyond what I've seen to get me hooked, which is kind of the point. Mm. Yeah, I think the thing for me as well is that it's so frustrating when you get a legal, completely above board streaming service in place that has a huge following. All I could see on Twitter mm. was Filmstruck were very active on Twitter. People were very complimentary of Filmstruck on Twitter. So it didn't seem like there, it wasn't being used and it wasn't being utilised. God knows why it's actually been cancelled and what the business model is and everything behind the scenes. But my issue is, is that if we're going to fight piracy, if we're going to have as healthy an industry as possible, you, you need to uphold these streaming services. You need to be able to sustain these places for people to access films legally because there's always the option to find it and and, and do piracy <laughs> and then the money doesn't mm. go to where it should and there's no point in hyping up films and for us to talk about films and then being cultural uh, pinpoints particularly for people who are studying film now like what an incredible resource filmstruck would have been I remember back in my day, come sit on the mm -hmm. porch as grandma rocks on her rocking chair. I remember back in the day, like studying film, like at college and, and then uh, at my master's, which is not that long ago, actually. Uh, you, you know, you were, you were depending on DVD libraries. But now it's like, actually, I could access so many things at my fingertips. But in terms of looking back, particularly in terms of like, films that should be in an archive and that was the exciting thing that filmstruck seemed to me to be was like yeah there's the, this curation but there was this extensive archive and like a library at your fingertips yeah but i just wonder i wonder whether it's the actual economics of it just don't add up maybe the the thing that filmstruck had uh, that was i think seen as its advantage and which obviously uh, didn't prove to be the case was it was part of Time Warner, so it was part of this big corporate conglomerate, and so therefore it didn't really have the impetus on it to be kind of like, the idea would be, oh, this doesn't need to be massively profitable because you're part of this big machinery and you can kind of go off and do your own thing. You're an outshoot of TCM, and TCM's kind of like this juggernaut that's kind of just going to keep going uh, indefinitely or whatever. And what it ended up seeming to be is that whoever was making the decisions looked at it and says, eh, it's not profitable enough, even though like that's not really what it was trying to be. Like obviously it was trying to advance the TCM brand or whatever, and they would want to make money. But like at some point, someone made the realization this is never going to be Netflix, and maybe that is the biggest takeaway from this whole thing: is that we have reached a point where you can't really have, in the same way that you know the 
the middle class, uh, effectively, of the kind of films that get made has more or less been killed off. Um, and movies now can only be $200 million blockbusters or, like, $2 million indies. Um, mm. And then the occasional, like, $30 million, which is seen as a risk to make something like Crazy Rich Asians, which takes, which costs, like, $30 million and does well. Maybe streaming services is going the same way, that now you have your big giants that just kind of go for everyone, your Amazons and uh, Netflix and Hulu, and everything else is just something like Shudder or Mubi, where it's really, really keenly focused, so you don't have to get a big audience. And there isn't room for something like Filmstruck, which was trying to be a middle ground, uh, a, a accessible, available to everyone streaming service that had lots of movies that would appeal to a fairly broad audience, which also had like the appeal to kind of like the the, the cineast or the cinephile. Um, mm. And I think uh, and another thing about this story that I think kept cropping up on kept cropping up on Twitter about it was people like saying, well, you know, this is why physical media is important or, you know, why don't you subscribe to Canopy, which is the um, streaming service that US libraries have, which has a fairly big library anyway. Um, And I think that misses the point because the point with Filmstruck was anyone could have it and it was very cheap. Like Mm. my membership was $100 a year. And in order to watch the number of movies that I watched on Filmstruck over the course of the time that I had it would have cost me personally several thousand dollars (laughs) (laughs) because it would have been uh, either buying those things or renting them digitally, um, you know, would have been prohibitive, uh, massively prohibitive. And that's why like the physical media argument doesn't work for most people. That makes it very rarefied and gatekeepery because it's like, if you have the money, to buy all this stuff on physical media, great, bully for you. It's not great for most people who want to experience all this stuff but maybe don't have, you know, a huge amount of disposable income or people who, you know, don't have access to a public library or their public library doesn't take part in Canopy. And, you know, that's that's the, the real loss is that something mm-hmm. like Filmstruck was available to anyone who wanted it and potentially, you know, could have, and I'm sure did for a lot of people for the brief time it was around, expose people to the kind of stuff that just would be so hard to be exposed to in any other way yeah mm. I, I mean i always wonder about the economics of of like rights ownership because there's got to be mm. a point at which you own the rights you don't have it you know once it's out on dvd it's made its money once it's people aren't buying it it might sell like a handful of copies a year i really don't understand like how how big the difference of money is that you can say, well, I'm going to take this film off my streaming service and make more money, you know, selling it to like TV networks around the world that will have half the amount of people seeing them, therefore less avenue revenue from like advertising and stuff. I never really kind of understood that. And I, I know that like TV stations buy like movies bundled together, which is why you see a lot of kind of the same films on like ITV4 or whatever, because they've bought... Mm. 50 titles from a studio that they will just kind of play on rotation. And I just wonder whether at some point the economics is going to change to the point where a studio can say, oh, do you know what? Fuck it. We'll stick it all up on a streaming service and it's $5 a month and you will be able to access it and we'll make more money from that than we ever would selling DVDs or selling it to television. I think that may be fast approaching. Like you, the Disney trying to do their own streaming service, and I think 
you know, like Warner will probably try again with a streaming service that isn't connected to Criterion. And but but I th- I can't see how that succeeds either because mm. it's so narrow. And that was again that was the thing that was good about Filmstruck is it was it was so broad and it had the potential to offer such great access for a reasonable price as opposed to having to subscribe to 12 different streaming services uh, effectively nullifying the effort you know to cut the cord and to uh, escape from cable packages which maybe that's just what this all is it's just cable companies saying well we're losing revenue from people not paying for cable packages anymore so we're just going to destroy all the other options which um it would not surprise me as being the the kind of disaster capitalist uh, approach to the whole thing. Mm. So this cheery uh, <laughs> cheery discussion uh, leads on to our main topic, the even cheerier uh, question of the state of cinema. And this was inspired by an interview with Paul Schrader, the uh, chronicler of God Lone, God's Lonely Man, and the uh, and King Swifty himself who gave an interview to Slash Film where he was talking about First Reformed, his most recent movie, but also about kind of the media landscape as it currently stands. And, you know, he was talking about VOD and Netflix and why he's not been drawn to those sort of avenues, like particularly or with something like First Reformed, how he was very insistent on it getting a cinema release first and then you know going on vod and i think he painted in that uh, interview which i'll put a link to in the show notes a very grim view of cinema in and the state of cinema in uh, in 2018 which is probably not that surprising if anyone's seen first reformed he certainly seems like someone who is who is uh not particularly happy with anything that's happening in the world and you know He's every right to be uh, kind of morbid about the future. But I, I thought that would be an interesting jumping off point for our discussion about what, what do we think about where cinema, particularly, I guess we're mainly talking about Hollywood cinema at the moment, because obviously if we were to talk about all of world cinema, like it'd be an, a 27 part 50 hour <laughs> podcast that would be so hard and so indigestible but but you know that that is i think that's the context within which we're most comfortable so that i think is probably what we're going to be discussing yeah well i, I guess we covered a lot like we opened the door for the discussion with with the fact that in this show's lifetime and mm. we're coming up on seven years now ed yeah um um, or, you know, 45 minutes if we start at the beginning of the show once Emily joined. Um, uh, in the space, in our lifetime of our show, streaming has gone from something that just didn't exist. Mm. Netflix was a, was it like a DVD? It was like Love Film, wasn't it, over, over here? Yeah. And it was a DVD rental delivery service um, to being, like, I looked at, on my Letterboxd account, like the films I've seen from this year, like more than half of them were Netflix original movies. And it's like, it has changed the idea that a new movie coming out can just be there when I turn it on and it just appears on my screen. And I think, Oh, I might watch that rather than a film that is talked about for years and just has to then arrive at the cinema and is built up. The idea that that is now the majority of my watching is very strange to me. And I think if you're making films and even people who are interested in films are doing that, 
then what are people who aren't particularly interested in films doing that? They're not going to the cinema. <laughs> They're just watching films on Netflix. So then you get people like Martin Scorsese who's like, well, I might make a film for Netflix. And then you get people like um, Alfonso Cuaron who's like, well, I might make a film for Netflix. And then you come back to that point that we brought up like a couple of years ago where people just want content, don't they? It doesn't mm. matter that it's watching it on a television screen. And then when I just hear myself say that out loud, I wind back six years ago and just say, well, we just want content creators. It doesn't matter <laughs> about cinema. Mm. And then I find myself in this difficult situation because I like the fact that there's all this stuff and it's happening and it's accessible and it's, you know, affordable. But at the same time, are we losing something? Mm. And I feel like the the kind of fogey in me is feeling like, yes, perhaps we are losing something. And then the millennial in me is like, I can't afford to buy a house because I've bought too many avocados. But also, I've got all these movies I can watch. And it's it's just here and it's now. And ultimately, it's just a label, isn't it? I guess. Mm. And like, is, is format snobbery and, you know, being stuck in tradition going to be something that generations ahead laugh at us for in 50 years Mm. yeah i think i guess for me one of the things that trader mentions in that interview was he talked about how you make more of a commitment to a movie that you see in the theater because you're more patient because you've made the effort to go and see it and i really do feel as if the shift I think that really does alter that relationship with how you understand a movie and how you relate to a movie. I think there is as good as any movie that Netflix make, you know, everyone says Roma is is fantastic and I'm sure uh, it'll be very good when I watch it on my TV screen unless I happen to be lucky enough to live near a city that is showing it on the big screen when it gets released, which is uh, far from certain because I don't know how their plans are going to shape out for that but if i do you know when i do see it i i feel as if it will feel more disposable for being seen on a screen because that's just how i view stuff that does stream on there and i think that's that's partly conditioned from having grown up in a society in which that's basically you know you saw movies because you went to go and see them at the cinema or you watched them in video and video because of technical limitations was inherently inferior and now like the gap in quality visual quality between streaming and watching it in a theater isn't is that there's not as like massive a gulf between those two and ultimately you think well i'm just glad to have seen it rather than having it on an inferior format than never seeing it at all but i do think there is there is something very almost chemically different to watching a movie in a theater as opposed to watching it at home and i do feel like the decline of a theatrical experience is damaging to kind of like the notion of of cinema as kind of like a mass medium i have to say like on your point about like the the idea of being more patient because mm. you're in a, um, a cinema, for example, as opposed to being at home, I don't think it's a question of patience. I think it's just a question of entrapment. Like, <laughs> you, you, you essentially have the option to walk out if you want to, or feel yeah. that you have to. 
you're not patient. You're literally um, shutting off everything else in the world to be there in that moment and just look at what is being presented to you. And I think, funnily enough, I think we're going through um, a bit of a double dip with cinema in terms of an experience. Because what Mm. streaming has presented us with is understanding the actual experience that going to a cinema gives us. And when you look at things like the absolute convenience and ease of streaming, but you are still watching it generally on a smaller screen, even if you have a projector at home, it's not the same. In an in your own home environment where the line with TV then blurs because you're not... I mean, I, I don't personally plunge all the lights off and, and submerge myself in darkness watching stuff. Like, I can I can see this little world in a window within the larger world but as we've understood what streaming can present us with we also understand what cinema actually presents us with and you see everything kind of split on this spectrum right before it was literally just like pretty much the cinema experience and some home video takeaway now because we've got streaming the extremes have have, have pushed either way so you could you could basically watch a film on your phone on the train home but you could also go to something like secret cinema and have the most immersive mm. experience where it's the other way around. The, instead of having this window onto this world in your life, your life then becomes this window to the world and, and you are immersed in the story and you have an extra level of experience with it. So I think the extremes have pushed and I, and I think, you know, having expanded, I think they'll contract again a little bit so I think even though I don't think we're ever going to completely lose cinema it's too fucking resilient guys like it's it's gone through so much and yeah we're adding certain things to it and I and I think that maybe some of that will fall away um I mean a lot of immersive live cinema is very labor intensive and skill intensive to keep up it is at a high margin but people are more willing to pay for something quite special because one you're probably saving money from having a netflix subscription (laughs) so you are able to like club all of your money together and be like oh instead of paying like 20 quid to see one film in leicester square it makes sense to pay 60 or 80 and then have an entire night where i'm actually at the grand budapest hotel and get dinner thrown in and have a have a night to remember you know Mm. um so i think we're going through a very rapid state of expansion and I think we're starting to see things contract now. But I think the thing that about that Paul Schrader slash film interview for me is that Schrader is not actually thinking about film. He's genuinely just sounding quite doom and gloom and misanthropic about the state of the planet. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think he's even really commenting yeah. on film. I think he's just feeling quite desperate and a bit um pre-apocalyptic. What Emily just said there about the extremes of, you know, streaming at one end of the spectrum and um going to immersive screenings like secret cinema or kind of like boutique bespoke screenings um in kind of um more um, kind of luxurious cinemas are the extremes that have, have, have kind of like risen up and the middle is falling away is very similar to what happened to music where mm. the rise of vinyl 
is yeah. like kind of you can buy it in Tesco now. You can buy vinyls in Tesco, <laughs> but people don't buy CDs. They listen. They have streaming, and it's the way that people absorb music. You stick a playlist on with like five hundred songs on shuffle while you're out doing something. But then if you want to listen to an album, you listen to it on vinyl. And that's kind of like what's happening with cinema. Like people like, oh, I don't mind having something on in the background or watching a film that I don't have to commit to possibly. And then but if I do, I'm going to go to the cinema and do it properly. And mm. I feel like that's a, kind of a weird thing. That the middle's dying away in both of those uh, both of those art forms. I think you also see in terms of distribution or presentation, I think the rise of something like the Alamo Draft House, which we've talked about before, or those kind of in in the US, those cinemas that really dedicate themselves to making the experience of seeing it, not in terms of like a live theatre thing, but in just in terms of like you can go in, you can have a you get to sit in a nice seat, you can order food, the food is the food is brought to you in a very uh, uh unobtrusive way. It doesn't get in the way of it. You can have a drink and make it like more of this luxury experience that isn't just you go in you sit on a ratty seat um this your knees are up to your chin because there's no leg room you know like more towards making it feel like sort of a boutique experience mm. I, th- I think that maybe points to the idea that you know to keep it viable um for at least for cinemas on the smaller end of things that what you need to do is to create, make it feel like a experience that really justifies your experience. And, 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 you know, that also ties into something like the brief and glorious reign of movie pass where so many people went to see so many movies um, during the last year using movie pass because it cost them nothing. Like it cost people so little to go and watch a movie with movie pass that they just didn't care what they saw they didn't care what the experience was it was just like i'm just gonna go out and it's gonna cost me like two dollars because i've already seen 15 movies this month and like that again speaks to the extremes you either give people this incredible experience or you just basically say this costs you nothing it's a dreadful experience but you get to go out of the house <laughs> like mm-hmm. maybe that again uh talks to the the era of extreme the age of extremes to uh quote eric hobsworth um mm. use my degree for a second there um <laughs> i enjoyed but, it but the uh <laughs> the the other thing i was thinking in terms of like commercially and we talked about this a little earlier you know like there is this very clear stratification now between the the, the huge movies that get made and the small movies and I do feel as if it is bad for film culture that and culture in general that there are so few movies that exist in that middle strand that are successful. Mm. Um, a podcast that I really, really love is a podcast called Blank Check, which is a podcast where the two hosts kind of go through the filmographies of directors who had tremendous success and were then able to essentially write themselves a blank check to make whatever they wanted. So they've done people like... Um, Christopher Nolan and James L. Brooks, and they're currently doing Nancy Myers. And they, at the end of every episode, they do this thing where they talk about where the movies, how those movies performed commercially. And they kind of like talk through what were the top five movies at the box office that week. And a recurring theme they come to whenever they talk about movies that were successful in the 80s or the 90s is just how much more variety there was of movies that were making a lot of money. Like they talk about. Terms of Endearment, 
which was like a huge... It was the second biggest movie of 1983 behind Return of the Jedi. <laughs> That's crazy. It was a weepy comedy drama <laughs> and it was made at like $180 million in old money. And so it's like $300 million today. The example they use is says, what if Lady Bird was the second most successful movie of last year behind The Last Jedi? Like, that's the kind of thing. And and you just don't see that anymore. Or they also talk about, like, that same week that Terms of Endearment opened, like, a Richard Pryor concert movie was in the top five. And, like, there just don't really seem to be that much variety now. It's like, I don't want to sound, like, super old and say it's all superheroes, but there's a lot of superhero movies. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of... And, and it seems to be the kind of movies that get a wide release and are allowed to succeed and to find a mass audience has narrowed considerably. And that's yeah. why when you see something like Crazy Rich Asians come along, like part of the reason why that's so hopeful is because, you know, it's a predominantly Asian cast and it's telling a story that isn't hasn't been told before in that kind of big budget way. But also it's a kind of movie that doesn't get made and isn't given that kind of a push anymore. Mm, yeah. I mean, we've said it before many times on the show that, you know, Hollywood has ceded the middle ground to television. Mm. And, you know, with, with the more filmmakers and the more kind of big names and the, kind of the more talent um, that goes to television, the the kind of like the less cinema becomes about um, stories like Lady Bird. I mean, mm. you look at like like things like, uh, is it called uh, uh, Big Little Liars? Is that the name of the show? Big uh, Little Liars, yes. Big, is that what it's called? And look at the cast of that movie. Um, or uh, sorry, that TV show, or look something like uh, Sharp Objects or something. Mm. You don't. You just look on television, and you know there's movie stars on television, mm. and like it, you suddenly think, well, I don't have to leave the house to go and see. To, like if if Terms of Endearment was made now, it would be a six part series on HBO. Yeah, totally. You, and, you know, and... it, it, it wouldn't be a film. It wouldn't be in the cinema. And then you see something like The Sinner, like you see there. Jessica Biel, who used to be, a, I wouldn't say she was necessarily a movie star, but she was certainly someone who was in a lot of movies for a, for a, a long period of time and then just kind of disappeared. Similar, Bill Pullman, who's one of the actors on the show as well. Like, they're both people whose movie careers either straight up ended or just kind of like they gradually moved into kind of smaller movies and, you know, TV offers them a chance to do interesting work that they're just not being offered elsewhere and yeah you're, you're right that the middle ground is being seeded to television and that's not necessarily a, a bad thing in general like i'd much rather that jessica b will be doing really really good work on television than not working at all and ditto bill pullman but it's bad for cinema that those people aren't being allowed to do good work there for kind of like a big mass audience. Because even when mm. on the Sinner, you're, like, you're talking about a show that's being watched by like a couple hundred thousand people a week. Like it's not, it's good. Yeah. It's a very good show, but it's not like driving the conversation much. Mm, yeah. I, I, I remember like, uh, um, I'm, I'm really unsure of the names of the people involved um, but they were they were famous actors, and I remember someone saying on Twitter, "Oh yeah, like ex actress, I know she did ex superhero movie for the money," which just you know, kind of I know that people used to do like the big budget films for the paycheck. You know, you'd, Michael Caine would make uh, Jaws four for his summer house or whatever, famously. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, 
is that the way that the economics of being an actor work that you know you um turn up in a superhero movie have a couple of scenes where you like you know gob off some exposition and then you disappear to television to do some interesting work was that michelle williams ah that was it yes in venom that's right that's exactly who it was and that's just weird that you know she'd be in venom um which is not going to be the toughest day at the office for one of the best actors on the planet um that then they would have to go and do good work elsewhere and that work might not necessarily be on the big screen Mm. in terms of like the future of cinema one thing that i would recommend to keep it going and to kind of wrest the audience back from stream um, streaming services is you know how like cinemas now have like child-friendly screenings or like you know um screenings for um people who are hard of hearing or like autism friendly screenings what you need is screenings for people who are like don't want to get out of their pants and they (laughs) they, slob friendly screenings we could have we'll pick you up drive you to the cinema you can sit in your underpants on your phone eating crisps loudly as you want and watch the film all of a sudden money rolling you watch this is uh dangerously close to that like phones on screenings or whatever that people were suggesting like a couple of years ago, you know, where people like said, Oh shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, that got pilloried on Twitter. So I'm afraid you, you will have got us cancelled Matt mm. in the, uh, uh, in the modern sense. <laughs> I'm like one of those tech bros in Silicon Valley. who's like, yeah, <laughs> how about a kind of an Uber, which is like a big vehicle that picks up like 10 people at a mm. time at different stops. around the- <laughs> I've invented a bus. Shit. I've invented staying at home watching Netflix, haven't I? God damn it. (laughs) And we end this episode, as we end all our episodes, with Shot vs. Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think that you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for us this week? Uh, Yeah, I'm going to recommend a show that I avoided for a long time because it had a terrible title. (laughs) Then it changed its title and now I watched it and it's very good. It's called Lovesick. Yes. Yeah, there we go. Um, uh, Previously known, a.k.a. uh, Scrotal Recall, which Mm -hmm. uh, sums up the premise of the show very accurately, actually. Um, But, you know, put me off and didn't watch it. It's a show that was on Channel 4 and then was cancelled or it just kind of drifted away. And then Netflix picked it up, put it out as a Netflix exclusive and kept it going for three seasons. They're all on Netflix and I'd recommend you watch them because they're excellent. The general... Um, concept is a man played by Johnny Flynn, also a guitar player, um, and uh, has some very good music, and is uh, the half brother of Jerome Flynn from Robson and Jerome. But I feel like I'm getting uh, sidetracked. Um, <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, and it's about it's about his character who finds out he's got chlamydia, and he has to go back and um, speak to all of his ex girlfriends and talk to them. And it's uh, kind of flicks between the, the past and the present and kind of uh, weaves this story of kind of very interconnected um, kind of relationships and kind of very complicated relationships, but does it in a very kind of genuine kind of heartfelt way um, that is um, there's some very accurate depictions of relationships in that show. Um, whilst at the same time uh, being very funny and uh, it does a great job with using all of its cast um, and kind of um, mining their, uh, kind of acting abilities and giving them all good stuff to do. There's a couple of characters who at the start you think, oh, they're just a passenger, they're going to annoy me, and by the end they're like the most important thing. And they've got like heartbreaking stories that go along with it. But it's a very funny, very good, very uh, genuine, very real show. I know, Emily, you've seen it, and um, Ed, you have still yet to see it, but you should definitely do it, and that's my recommendation this week. Ed, you absolutely should, and I have to cut in, Matt, just for some Glasgow pride, <laughs> because uh, it is shot in Glasgow. It's this odd thing where it kind of, 
it never explicitly says that it's Glasgow, but it doesn't hide that it's Glasgow either. It's a stunningly English cast. Uh, there are mm-hmm. Scottish people in the uh, in the satellite characters, but I agree with you. It's incredibly touching and develops in a way that I did not expect. There's a fantastic interview that you can find somewhere online about the name change uh, with the creator and, and showrunner, and how that how how that came about and how it affected things. And I think everyone should come to Glasgow because we can all sit in the Trans European Cafe with the big <laughs> map of hmm. the world and bemoan our love lives or lack thereof. Uh, I will just say uh, Glasgow has been uh, thrown into travel turmoil over the past week because a little dog and pony show called, uh, you might have heard of it, The Fast and the Furious. Yeah, maybe. Mm, it's this yeah. little obscure... Mm. Yeah, a movie um, from the 1950s. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's this little obscure like racing thing, I don't know, uh, yeah. has, has been filming in the centre, but uh, people have been spying a double-decker red london bus um so if glasgow is being made to stand for london i'm not i'm not going to be totally happy but yes watch love sick everyone it's fucking great yeah i should just name check the creator his name is tom edge and that may sound like a youtuber (laughs) who makes angry videos about cartoons and how they're not sexy anymore um but that is genuinely his name and yeah he does a great job uh the discussion of glasgow uh looking like uh, London or being made to look like London just reminded me of the joke from I think the second Austin Powers movie where they're driving uh, along through what is clearly you know an American highway and Austin just goes isn't it amazing how England looks nothing like Southern California that's (laughs) that's kind of what I feel whenever I uh, see see one place uh, filling in for another uh, and people not doing a good job of it Emily what have you got to recommend for us this week I have a little tidbit that a friend of mine recommended me the other week, which I've been absolutely uh, caning to use um, oh, to use some early 2000s parlance. Um, it is a YouTube <laughs> a YouTuber, YouTuber um, called Nakey Jakey. Uh, he's not Nakey, but he's very much Jakey. Uh, he is <laughs> a fantastic uh, games critic and commentariat, and something that's particularly refreshing about him is that he is incredibly loving towards games and he tends to see the best in things he has a wonderful uh inflection of speech and lots of different little uh nakey jakeyisms um such as any hooch and uh, we are all legions of hot boys or gamer girls i like to think i'm a bit of both um and he mainly sits on a swiss exercise ball and green screens himself into things but he (laughs) never outstays his welcome all of his videos are really fantastically edited he's kind of effortless on the surface but there's clearly a lot of work that goes into everything that he does most of his video essays are rarely like eight minutes or or longer um which i think is a perfect way to get in make your point have fun and get out of there again um he does lots of lovely songs and raps for his patreon subscribers in terms of uh, giving them credits and i just really really enjoyed him and also the sight of him on an exercise ball and his name nakey jakey reminded me of that very bizarre soft drink back in the day shaky J. <laughs> I don't remember this. I appreciate the nostalgia. Matt, just to, to try and sum it up for you very quickly, um, Shaky Jake was a milkshake that was contained in a bottle not too dissimilar to the No More Tangles, No More Tears Sailor Makes uh, back. Oh, yep, 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 yep. And there was an advert that I uh, 
will stick with me forever, which is where you have Shaky Jake et al. and friends uh, rocking backwards and forwards on their uh, dome-like bottoms. And uh, it was this kind of Yorkshire accent that kicked in that just went, oh, for goodness sake, Shaky Jake. Uh, don't know why that <laughs> did is not no longer on our shelves anymore. I wonder what happened there. Are you, are you fucking high? Because that's <laughs> not real. Uh, I'm not high right now. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not buying it. I need proof. All right, I'll 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 bring you receipts, I promise. But no, my recommendation <laughs> is Nakey Jakey. Mm, noted. Fantastic. I'm going to recommend, also video game related, a episode of the Polygon podcast, Quality Control, in which uh, the host, Dave Tatch, talks to one of the writers at Polygon about a game they've reviewed and specifically about the review they've written and the most recent episode of this is on the um is on the blockbuster release red dead redemption 2 and i'm going to recommend it largely because i think it's a really good example of how to do thoughtful criticism and interrogative criticism uh you know chris plant is essentially made to defend his review of the game which is largely positive but you know has he has a lot of gripes with it that he goes into in detail and he's very thoughtful about it and i think it's also a really good argument for having a very expansive view of culture as a critic because a large part of the review is plant talking about his why he likes the gang in the game that you kind of pal around with because they're all kind of terrible at their jobs and constantly fucking up. And then he draws that into the tradition of Jackie Chan movies. And then he also starts talking about how it reminds him of the work of Christopher McQuarrie and about how drawing a line between The Way of the Gun and Christopher McQuarrie's later Mission Impossible movies, which was a connection I'd never made, but then after hearing him make it, I was like, oh yeah, that does track that his kind of recurring theme is people being incredibly bad at their job and being forced to try and work their way out of it. And I just think it's a really, really great use of the podcasting format uh, to have this really fascinating discussion that also illuminates the ways in which video game criticism can be like really thoughtful and content contemplative whilst also you know being the outlet of the enthusiast press which a lot of great games journalism is uh, and i think it's really really good and you can watch a video version of it on the polygon youtube channel which i'll put a link to in the show notes where you get to hear them talk over some lovely footage of red dead redemption 2 which is certainly a very pretty game mm. noted oh. again if you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places, and Spotify as well. Uh, we've been getting a lot of hits on Spotify, so if you're listening to us on Spotify, thanks. And you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Yay! 3.0! 3.0! <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>